Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, it is my joy to bring the message tonight. And um, if you're new here, my name is Pete, and I am the director of Chi Alpha, and it's my joy to bring um, God's word to us. Uh, Tonight, we are in a series of the book of Romans that we are calling Foundation, because we're like seaweed, right? Uh, As we just heard. (laughs) Rooted, founded on these glorious truths of the gospel that we we find in in the book of Romans that Paul articulates. He gives us these truths that are history-making, life-changing, and they build a foundation that can hold the weight of our lives. And he teaches us how to live on this foundation and how it changes everything. Changes everything. And so we are walking through that this semester. Uh, Before I get too far into my message and and so on, let let me uh, give you the context of why Romans was written. Um, A lot of times people will say that Romans is Paul's theological treatise. And I respectfully disagree. Paul did not sit down to write a theological treatise. Paul sat down to write a pastoral letter to an actual church with actual issues. And so let me tell you what was going on in Rome when Paul wrote this letter. Well, the gospel came to Rome um, without Paul. And it came through mainly Jewish Christians converting and embracing Jesus as their Messiah. And as they embraced Jesus as their Messiah... They started to follow him, but they also were quite Jewish. Their sensibilities were Jewish. Their backgrounds were Jewish. And so it looked a lot like Judaism as followers of Jesus. There were some Gentile believers there as well. But in AD 49, the Roman emperor Claudius did something crazy. He kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so for the next five years, there were no Jewish believers in Rome, or next to none at least, because they'd been kicked out of Rome. And so in the midst of that, the Gentile believers took over and were leading the church and many people were coming to Christ and, the, and, and it was a very Gentile church. So the church went from feeling very Jewish to feeling very Gentile. Well, then Claudius dies, the edict is revoked, and the Jewish believers start to make their way back into Rome. And what you have is this very Gentile church welcoming in the Jewish believers who used to be in charge, and now they're figuring out, how do we do this? And there's tensions of like, do the Jews have preference over the Gentiles because of their heritage and their lineage? Like, are they kind of like better Christians? And then the Gentiles are wondering like, what do we do with the Jewish sensibilities and some of their Jewish laws? Like, do we have to do that? And so they're, they're dealing with the tensions. And in the midst of those tensions, Paul says, I need to write them a letter. And so he writes the letter that we now know as the letter to, uh, called the epistle to the Romans. And what he does, he says this, he says, okay, I hear what's going on. And what you have is not just a sociological problem. You actually have a theological problem. So let me tell you the gospel and build a gospel foundation so then we can teach you how to live out the issues at hand. And so what he does is he goes back to the very beginning and he teaches them 
what the gospel is. And so with that backdrop, we're going to head into the book of Romans. Does that help a little bit? Okay, so, so here's the deal. You're going to have a lot of moments where he speaks to the Gentiles, and then he speaks to the Jews, and he speaks to the Gentiles and to the Jews back and forth. And our passage tonight, we're going to have that. And so what, actually, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but don't worry, I, I'll keep it into the time. But um, we've we got a, a, a lot that, to cover. But before we do that, let me tell you a story. In June, I'm sorry, in July, on July 24th, 2002, 20 years ago, at 8.50 p.m., miners, nine miners in Kew Creek Mine in Pennsylvania had a crisis. They were 240 feet below the surface of, of the ground, mining away, and they had a map that said that there was another mine that was hundreds of feet away, and as they were mining, they pierced the wall, and they ran into the other mine that was full of 50 million gallons of water. That 50 million gallons of water started to flow into their mine, and they found in the midst of this mine a a small area, a small enclave that they could take refuge in, but as their mine was filling up with 55-degree water, they did not know when it would stop and if they would survive. And so in that moment, one of the young miners asked the crew chief this question. How can I know I'll go to heaven if I die? Now, that's not a theological um, curiosity question at that moment. This is very practical, right? As the water's coming up, how, how, how do I know I go to heaven if I die? And the guy who was the head of the team said this. He said this in direct quote. In my book, all good people go to heaven and you're a good person, so you're all right. Let me ask you a question. That sounds good, but is it true? And what are the consequences of if that response is not accurate? Of course, we found out about this question because they all did survive in a fairly miraculous recovery. They lived to tell about it. But the Apostle Paul in in the the text we're going to look at today is actually going to answer this young man's honest question. And in doing so, teach us two extremely important foundational truths that if we're going to have a gospel foundation, have to be firmly set for us to live in the gospel. And so, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you wonder where Romans is, there's the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we have ushers. They'll be happy to give you a Bible. You can keep for free. Be happy to give you a Bible. Um, So Paul's going to share these two truths. I'm going to share them with you up front. And then after that, we're going to dive into them. Here are the two truths up front that Paul's going to... We tend to underestimate both these truths. And this is this, that you are far more sinful than you know. And on the other truth is this, that God's salvation is far greater than you ever dared to imagine. You're far more sinful than you know, but God's salvation is far greater than you ever dared to imagine. So that is what we're going to look at. We're going to start in verse 18, and Paul comes in hot. I'm just telling you, okay? So Paul comes in hot in verse 18, and here's what he says. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Well, that's okay, Paul. So 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, so what Paul's talking about when he says godless and wickedness, godlessness, he's talking about the rejection of God and the disobedience to God. The wickedness is about like how that plays out this way among people, right? So, the, so he's looking at both dimensions and he says, God's judging that. Why, why is God judging it? Well, because he's not indifferent to, to the suffering of his creation and the destruction of his creation. He's not indifferent to the fact that his will is being rejected. But what we're going to see is his wrath plays out in some surprising ways. So hang in there. It says, since what may be known, verse 19, about what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, he's saying this, that there are some very foundational truths that God did not hide, that are very evident that there is a God. If you just look in nature, it declares that there is a God and that he's the center of things. And so people are without excuse according to what they do with that knowledge. And then then we find out in verse 21 what they do. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And you're thinking, okay, Pete, I'm not an idolater. I mean, if you came over to my house in Nova, because that's where 50% of you are, I don't know where you're <laughs> if, if you came over to my house, you're not going to walk by an altar to, to, and have little idols on it. Or if I take you out to the backyard, you're not going to find a wooden you know, beam that is carved into an idol. And some of you are like, well, actually, I grew up in a house like that. And If you did, I mean, I understand those exist, but most of you are like, that's not me. But what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, we in our rejection of not glorifying God and giving thanks to him, we actually made an exchange and we turned from worshiping him and glorifying him towards idols. He said, there's three types of exchanges that you made and that I made that show the corruption of our heart. And so let's look at those three exchanges just for a moment that show us how we all are prone towards idolatry, okay? First is the exchange of glory. It says they exchange the glory of the immortal God. The word for glory that is um, used in the Bible actually has this sense of meaning of weightiness, okay? So, so we rejected the weightiness of God. And what happens is this. We, our hearts, give the weight that God is supposed to have in our lives, move to something else, and it captures our hearts, okay? And so what is weighty in our hearts is something other than God. Um, if, If you will, the center of gravity moves from God being the center to something else being the center. And so when that happens... God is dislocated from the center of our lives. And now this other thing is at the center of our lives. Something else has captured our affection. That's 
Go ahead and, and hit the next slide. The word in the next verse, in, in, in verse 26, it says this. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. The word sinful desires is this word, epithemia. And that's a, it's a Greek word. And Tim Keller says this, that, that that word literally means over-desire or an all-controlling drive or longing. In other words, something else has taken this place in your life that ha- has created an over-desire in you and the gravity of your life has turned from God being the center to something else being the center and it has a controlling drive and longing over your life. And so our idolatry, our idolatry, idolatrous tendency starts with something else grabbing our affections and it could be many, many things. Something becomes our ultimate. It could be, okay, let me, let me tell you how to identify what's become your ultimate. What is the source of your hope? What is the source, what is the thing, the person, or the desire that you look for towards for your hope, for your security, for your sense of value, for peace in life, for your meaning? And whatever that thing is, it becomes the center of your life. And it could be many things. This is why in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says that greed is idolatry. Why? Because for that person who's surrounded by greed, money has become the center of the gravity of their life and they look to money to be their source of hope, their source of security, their source of value, their source of meaning. Are you guys following me? So, so that's what happens. Something grabs our affections and it can be a, a multitude of things. It could be your career or your GPA that is your source of hope. It could be beauty. It could be sports. It could be sex. It could be a relationship. It could even become it be a marriage that suddenly God is no longer at the center and you reject his weightiness and something else becomes weighty in your life. Are you guys following me? Okay. And then when that happens, there's another exchange that happens that we find out in verse 25. Go ahead, next. next. That we exchange the truth for a lie. Verse 25, it says this. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And here's what what happens. You start to think about that thing. You reject the truth about God and you start to think about that thing as if it were God. It's gonna be the source of your hope. And so now your, your hope is conditioned on how this area goes in your life. It is the source of your security. So now the future of your life is in the hands of whatever that person or that thing or that desire is that has become the center of gravity in your heart. Are you guys following? So you rework your mind and you start to think differently and you exchange the truth of God that Cora was talking about for a lie and that idol starts to be the center of your thinking. Because it is your source of peace. It is your source of hope. It is your source of joy. And all of your thoughts are around it. Okay. And then there's a third exchange that happens. It's this. That we exchange the... Um, go ahead. We exchange our devotion. It says this. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Here's what I know. Every one of us will have something that is ultimate in our hearts. There's no one in here who will not have something that's ultimate because we are made to worship. Many theologians have said this, birds fly, fish swim, humans worship. 
Your heart will not be a vacuum. Something will become your ultimate. And whatever that ultimate thing is, that is your source of hope, your source of security, your source of value, your source of, of meaning, you will serve it and worship it with a religious devotion because it has the power over your life. So it's going to be all-consuming for you. And Paul says this, when that happens, when you have an, a, 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 your affection moves from the weightiness of God to the weightiness of something else, and that is the center of your gravity, and your mind moves from the truths of God onto the lies that this thing is going to serve you in some way, and moves from your worship of God and devotion to God to your worship and devotion to this idol that may not be made of stones, it may be, or, or, or wood, but be made of all these other things. When that happens, here's what happens. God has just been dislocated in your life and now things are going to go wrong. Um, in fact, I don't know if you uh, have ever played any sports, but I was thinking about this. I, I've said it before, but imagine you're at a uh, volley, you know, you're over by Mim Gym at the volleyball court, you know what I'm talking about? Back, back behind Mim. And you're playing volleyball and all of a sudden, your shoulder goes out of socket, okay? Um, we actually had one of our staff members have their shoulder, you know, dislocated this weekend. That's a whole other story. But anyways, um, he was playing, playing, sock, or playing, playing volleyball. Your shoulder goes out of socket, and you simply say this. It's dislocated, okay? You say, oh, don't worry about it, and you finish the game. You're going up there. you got a dislocated shoulder, and you're just smacking it down. Oh, I mean, what is happening as you live with that dislocation and act like it's not dislocated? What's, what's going to happen? It's going to cause collateral damage. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like tendons are going to pop. There's going to be stuff that's going to be ripped. There's like bone chips are going to, you know, because, because you're living with a dislocated shoulder and acting like it's not dislocated. You're like, why would you do that? And Paul's saying the same thing. Why would you do that? Because what happens is when God is dislocated from the center and you're living with things out of socket as they were intended to be, as you live that way, it's just going to do damage to your life, to culture, and to creation. And you know how God judges it when you dislocate him and you say, actually, there's something else that's more weighty in my life and more important and I'm gonna worship that thing. You know how he judges? Let me show you how he judges. You guys ready? Here's how he judges. He gives them over to it. Three times. He says he gives them over to it. That is his judgment. That is his wrath being displayed. He gives them over to it. He says, okay, you wanna live with your shoulder dislocated and act like it's not dislocated. See how that goes for you. And then he actually gives us a description of what that looks like, of what the collateral damage, what the dysfunction and damage is that it creates. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And he gives us a list. It creates economic disorder. Greed starts to get embedded in the human heart. It causes social disorder that's defined by envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and gossip and slanders and disobeying parents, so family dysfunction, and then selfishness reigns. Look at these words. This is all that Paul says. I didn't say any of this. God haters, 
Insolent. Don't know what that means. Look it up. I had to look it up. Okay, I don't know. But anyways, arrogant, boastful, no fidelity. In other words, they don't keep their word. No loving, no mercy. As Luther says, in our idolatry, in our rejection of God, we curve in on ourselves and we become supremely selfish. And what happens is disorder, dysfunction, and chaos reign. And here's the thing. He says, but they don't even stop at that. And we don't even stop at that. Here's what we do. We cheer others on to do the same thing. And at this point, as this scroll is being read to the Roman church, all the Jewish believers are like, yeah, that's the Gentiles. Yeah, that's, that's them. That sounds about right. And Paul says, not so fast. Look at chapter two, verse three verses. Here's what he says. You therefore, now speaking to the Jews, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourselves because you pass judgment and do the same things. Verse two. Now we know that God's judgment against against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape the judgment? In other words, you're judging them and like, yeah, that's them. Preach it, Paul. You know, amen to that. Those Gentiles, right? They're a bunch of idolaters. He's like, and when you point at them, you got three fingers coming right back at you, bro. You're an idolater too. And then just, just hop over. I'll... I'll uh, show you how he starts going for in verse 22 look at this he says you who say that people should not commit adultery do you commit adultery you who abhor idols do you rob temples and probably jewish people in that day didn't go around robbing temples but he's saying do you have idols in your heart too and then he says this You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? In other words, okay, so you can quote quote the Ten Commandments from the Torah and you learned all that. How's it going living that out? How's that going for you? you? Are you doing it? So I have three kids. I showed a picture of my family last week. I have three kids and um, sometimes they do stuff that annoys me. I'm just being real, you know. Like they take their socks off and just leave them around the house. I'm like, kids, who do you expect to pick these socks up? You leave your stinky old socks, you're laying on the couch, you take them off, you you leave them on the couch or by the couch. Who do you expect to pick those up? And then when they put on their shoes, they don't untie their shoes. They take their shoes They grab the tongue of their shoes and then they start doing this with their heel. And I'm watching, okay, I buy those shoes, okay? And I watch the heel of that shoe bend down. And I'm I'm saying, kids, you're ruining the shoe. You're breaking the, what do they call that? The cup of the shoe or whatever they call it. Whatever, you're breaking it. Like, where are you going? What are you doing? We just bought those shoes for, what are you doing, right? And uh, they just keep doing it. Well, I want to show you some shoes. Okay. That's what I'm talking about right there. You see the back of that shoe? See how there's holes in that? You know what that's from? People sliding on their shoes without untying them and they rip the back of them. You know whose shoes those are? They're mine. (laughs) 
I'm a hypocrite. You know what I do? I take my socks off and I leave them around the house. And I'm like, oops. And then I'm in a hurry. You know what I do? I slide my shoes on without tying them. And their shoes don't look like that. Whose shoes look like that? My shoes look like that. (laughs) Come on. Here's the thing. We are so much better at seeing other people's sin and not our own, aren't we? We're so much better calling out somebody else's sin and making a big deal of that and saying ours is just a little small thing. We're so much better when it comes to other people's. Theirs is big and important. Ours is small and benign. You know, we we get all out, I can't believe they'd go hook up like that. And then when we get on the computer, we shut the door. Or we are just, we can't believe how proud, how proud, that's just abhorrent pride. And then we go home and we sit in the living room and we cut people to shreds with our ungracious criticism. And we talk about how ungracious those other people are and we're keeping receipts. And Paul's like, every time you judge them, you're actually judging yourself, bro, because you're doing the same stuff. Um, in the 70s, there was this uh, Christian philosopher by the name of uh, Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer said this, he said, imagine that God, when you're born, puts an invisible voice recorder around your neck. And you live with this voice recorder around your neck. You just don't know it's there. And every time you judge someone, you say something judgmental, you talk to yourself, it's judgmental of somebody else, it just records it. And then, when you die and you get to heaven, God says, uh, just a second. And he comes over and he takes this voice recorder off of your neck. And he says, you know what? I think I'll just judge you by your own judgments, not by mine. And he plays them. Who of us would pass that judgment just coming against our own judgments of others? right? And the point is, Paul's saying, you Jewish people, that you're, you're all down on the, on the Gentiles, but you're, you're, in the, you're a sinner too, and you're in need of a Savior as well. And then he starts to wrap up his, his case like a An attorney, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. Look there for just a moment. He says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, speaking of the Jews? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. In other words, it's like at first he takes the, have you guys ever seen those UV lights? Like in a dark room, you turn it on, it's like shows all the fingerprints and all the stuff. You're like, ooh, I didn't know that was all there. I hear you don't ever want to do that in like a hotel room. Like it's just like, whoa, I don't, want, I don't know where to sit. I don't know what to touch. You know, anyways. But the point is, is, it's like he takes one of those UV lights and he shines it on the Gentiles and the Jews are like, that's exactly what we would expect. And then he shines it on the Jews and they look the same covered in their sin. 
There was a Russian poet who said this. He said, the heart of a bad man I do not know. But the heart of a good man I do know. And it is terrible. The heart of a bad man, bad man I do not know. But the heart of a good man I do know. And it is terrible. Or one theologian put it this way. Everyone is a sinner except this guy, Homer Simpson. <laughs> he had read the Bible and he was like, everyone's a sinner except this one guy, Jesus, right? See, here's the thing. We act like there's good people and bad people when the Bible says there's people who are sinners and then there's Jesus. And then he closes his, his closing argument. He, he quotes the Old Testament 10 times and I, I'm just kind of trying to give us a, a quick tour through here. In verse 19, he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, on judgment day, no one will be able to argue. If I were to ask you, would you let me put all the deeds you've ever done or thoughts you've ever thought up on PowerPoint tonight, would I have any takers? Okay, how about just for the last three months? No takers. I think we all understand we are all sinners and desperate. There, every mouth will be silent. everyone. That's the bad news. But the good news is it doesn't end there. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Listen to this. You have to have the bad news before you can understand the good news. But then praise be to God, there is good news. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between what? Jews and Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And here's the good news. The good news is that, yeah, you're far more sinful than you know. And Paul, like a hammer, just keeps hammering away. But he doesn't stop there. He says also, there's something even better. There's something even more powerful. There's something that trumps that. And that is this, that God's salvation is way better than you ever imagined. Because it doesn't just forgive you. When you place your faith in Christ, you're not just forgiven. Here's what happens. Because honestly, a lot of us can agree that, okay, okay, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. No, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just make you forgiven. It makes you righteous. He declares you righteous, not just neutral. You're righteous. And that, that movement from being objects of wrath, given over to our sin to those who are now declared righteous. How? We are given the righteous. You don't own it. I mean, you don't. I'm sorry, you don't achieve it, you're given it. It's yours because it was given to you through Christ. Romans 5.8 says this. God demonstrated his 
great love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, before you did anything right, when your heart was idolatrous and was making something else the center of your life, when your mind was putting all its hope and value in something else, while you were giving all your devotion to something else, Jesus did something for you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Why? So he could demonstrate his great love for you. Whenever I think about this verse, I always think of a video. And I want to show you a minute and a half video as I close. But let me set the stage. There's a guy by the name of Alexander Gama, who was a Norwegian adventurer. And this Norwegian adventurer was on a trek to the South Pole for three months. He trekked by himself on foot for three months to the South Pole. On his trek, on his way down, every few days, about, let me see, I have written down, every about 200 kilometers, he would bury a, a cache of like some food and some equipment to lighten his load so he didn't have to carry it all the way down, all the way back, okay? And what we're going to see is, he's on day 86. Day 86. And he isn't sure if there's another cache of food and equipment buried or not. And then he comes upon one, and he's not for sure what's in it, but he knows this. He hopes there's something life-giving in there, Okay? Day 86, he's been for 86 days hiking through the South Pole 10 hours a day. He's hungry, he's exhausted. Hungry is an understatement, probably close to starvation, right? Like starvation. And here's what happens. Oh. team come forward worship team please come forward quickly this is the logical response 
to the good news. This is the logical response. When you've faced and you've stared the bleakness of your sin in, in the face and the darkness of your sin and the idolatrous nature of your heart, and the, and when you stared that in the face and, and against that dark background and then in the midst of, of what is desperate, a ray of hope erupts in the midst of it. And a declaration of grace and righteousness that can be yours because you're loved. And before God just demonstrated his love for you in this, and while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And he has righteousness for you. And how do you respond? Whoa! This is a game changer. This is life-giving. It's better than cheese doodles. The point is, is when you're desperate, you don't know if you're going to make it. Something comes and someone comes and rescues you. It changes everything. A lot of you, I'm just getting to know. And I look forward to getting to know you. But there's two truths that I know to be true. That you and I are far more sinful than we know. And yet, God's salvation is greater than you have ever imagined. And if you've never stepped into that and placed your trust in Christ, let me just tell you quickly how to do it. Here's how you do it. One, you acknowledge that you're far more sinful than you knew. Two, Place your trust in Jesus and what he's done of taking the wrath for your sin and giving you his righteousness. And then number three, this is, this is what you got. You simply say, okay, what I used to make the center of gravity in my life, I now relinquish that and I make Jesus the center of gravity. It's called repentance. And it shifts from the glory being over here to the glory being in Jesus. And that foundation will change everything. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing this song and if that is you, I would encourage you tonight as we sing this song to sing it as an act of faith have that shift. Go from whatever it is, whether it be your career, your success, your GPA, sports, sex, your pleasure, other people's approval, whatever it may be, and just shift it over to Jesus, that he would be the center of gravity in your life. Let's sing together. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who needs a fresh revelation of the righteousness that they have in Christ that flows from your love for us pray for anyone in here who, who came in not trusting you and senses the pl-
full of the Spirit to place their faith in Jesus. And I pray that they would take the step. That they would step into the the initiation of their homecoming. That though they are naked in their sin, that you clothe them in a robe of righteousness and call them your own. Lord, thank you for the glorious truth that we are more sinful than we know. And yet your salvation is far, far, far greater than we could have ever imagined. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the benediction tonight, yeah. For the benediction tonight, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.